Hello. Welcome back to Move This World with Sarah, conversations in social emotional learning. I recently had a fascinating chat with best-selling author and therapist Marissa Peer. Marissa is a true visionary. When she came out with RTT, Rapid Transformational Therapy, almost 30 years ago, she challenged the mental health profession with the simple but revolutionary idea that the work we do for ourselves needn't be difficult, painful, or even take a long time. With her creation of the I Am Enough movement, she has helped CEOs, Olympic athletes, celebrities, and millions of people with their own goals of mental health and self-improvement. As someone who feels very in my body and who needs regular dance and movement to feel whole, I especially appreciated Marissa's insight into the mind-body connection, with her reminding us that we're not a mind and a body, but rather a mind in a body. And I loved how she tells us to forget about being perfect and embrace our flaws. In fact, Marissa came up with one of my new favorite words when she told me we must start thinking of ourselves as flossom. I've been using it in conversation ever since. Marissa reminds us that the most important dialogue to have is with ourselves. So I look forward to hearing what contemplation and dialogue this conversation provokes. Today, I am honored to be joined by Marissa Peer, superstar therapist, best-selling author, and leader of the I Am Enough movement. Marissa, before we get started, we are going to take an opportunity to center ourselves and check in with one another. I know you are more towards the end of your day in London. It's late morning here in New York. So a lot has already happened, and we want to take the opportunity to center ourselves and be present for one another in this conversation. So the way we will do that is by sharing our name and how we're feeling in a sound. So if you could excavate the feeling deep inside of you in this moment, on this day, afternoon for you, late morning for me, what that is manifested in, in a sound, what that might be. I'm Sarah, and today I'm feeling... Marissa, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling very chilled. What would that chilled sound like for you today? An exhalation, just a breathing out. Mm, Great. Thank you. So that's helpful for us to know about one another as we move into this discussion. So Marissa, as someone who has dedicated your life to helping others and bringing forward conversations around therapy and wellness and personal growth, this topic seems to really be having a moment. And for me and for us at Move This World, I know we're experiencing something similar for over 15 years. We've been waving our hands in the air and talking about empathy and the importance of social-emotional skills and helping us all succeed and work and life and thrive. But now, I don't know if it's because of the pandemic and everything that people have experienced the last few years, it seems to be getting more serious attention. Do you feel society is getting more comfortable talking about subjects such as wellness and mental health? Oh, absolutely. I think that's been going on for some time. We now hear children talking about their mental health. We just actually 
put a program into schools called the I Can't or I Can Challenge, making a cheerleader for children to use. And they all talked about their mental health. And hearing 10 year olds go, he's helping me with my mental health was interesting because it's just not something that was in my vocabulary when I was growing up. But I think we talk about our mental health, our emotional well-being, our inner child, wounded ego. I think those words have gone into the vocabulary and I think they're there to stay. And I think that's a good thing. What do you think is causing this shift? Do you think it's the pandemic? Do you think it was happening before the pandemic? I think it was happening way before the pandemic. I think in the last at least 10 years, probably more. You know, there used to be a health food shop in London called Cranks in the 80s. And it was called Cranks because people who went to health food were Cranks. And now there's a health food shop on every street corner. People are doing yoga. They're meditating. They're manifesting. I think we've understood that you cannot separate the mind and the body. You have to work on both. And I think we've sort of paid a price for just, you know, if you looked at Wall Street years ago and work, 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 cash is king. I think we've realized that cash isn't king. Emotional well-being is king. We've seen some successful people fall apart because of their health. And there's an ancient Cree saying that says, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And that's absolutely true. So I think before COVID, we already knew that. But COVID certainly shone a light on how we're doing emotionally. You might have a house and some organic food, and maybe you can pay your bills, but how are you doing emotionally? What's really going on? And I think it's been long overdue. You talk about that mind-body connection, and that so resonates with me personally as a dancer and as the founder of Move This World, where everything we do is embodied and creative and connecting how we feel in our hearts and what we understand in our brains. What do you see in terms of the mind-body connection, some kind of incredible examples of how this can come together, and what are the risks of the damage that we can do to our minds and bodies? You know, one of my favorite expressions, and it comes from, I think, 150 years ago, and it was by a great psychiatrist called Henry Maudsley. He said, the feeling that cannot find its expression in tears may cause other organs to weep. And I've always loved that sentence because in its simplicity is its profoundness. If you can't open your mouth and say, I'm sad, if you can't say, I'm hurt, if your eyes can't cry, if your mouth can't form the words that say, you hurt me, then you better believe your body's going to do it for you. And so we can't shut down our feelings. We've been trying to Netflix our feeling, donut our feeling, drink our feelings, medicate, even shop our feelings. But they're so real, the most real thing you have. You are a body with feelings, and feelings really come in front of everything else. And often we say, I've got a terrible headache. I've got a stomach ache, and we really need to teach doctors to say, tell me about your feelings. We're not a mind and a body. We're a mind in a body. And what's going on in our mind really comes in front of what's going on in our body. After all, people who are very stressed will often be constipated. People who are very anxious often have diarrhea. We talk about, I've got my nervous stomach, my irritable bowel, my back always goes out when I'm stressed. I always get a cold when work's getting on top of me. So we already know this goes on. And it's a wonderful thing that we're finally becoming more clear about it, understanding it, because in the understanding is a power to do something about it. Are there certain tools that you personally use? I know you have a background in exercise and have even taught aerobics with Jane Fonda. 
Do you have certain practices for your mind-body health that help you move through the day successfully? Yeah. One of my favorite expressions is you must feel the feeling until it no longer requires to be felt. So I was talking today with someone who was saying that she'd been excluded from an event that everyone else was invited to. And she was so upset. I said, you know, you need to really feel that hurt. Don't eat it. Don't shut it down. You need to sit with it, go, I feel terribly hurt. I'm so hurt by what's happened because when you can acknowledge the hurt, it goes away because feelings are rather like a classroom of children going, hey, notice me, here I am. When we ignore our feelings or try to eat our feelings, they just regroup and come back stronger than ever. When we can sit down again, I feel hurt. I feel betrayed. I feel let down. When you can accept your feelings, it's what I call triple A. First of all, be absolutely aware of what you're feeling. I'm feeling jealous. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling so disappointed with the way my kid is doing at school or my partner's treating me. The first A is be aware of it. And the second A is to accept it. You say, oh, well, I shouldn't feel that. So saying I shouldn't be jealous is not saying I shouldn't be diabetic. You are, and it's okay. Be aware of it. Totally accept it, even if it seems unnatural. I shouldn't be I've got nothing to be upset about. I've got nothing to be sad about. No, you're feeling it, so you have. So accept it. And the third A is to articulate it. And that's when people find the hardest. What do you mean? Well, let's imagine you're feeling really upset with your kid or your partner. You can shut yourself in the bathroom, turn on the taps and say, right now, I feel really upset with my child. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be logical. After all, feelings aren't logical. You're working with the emotional mind, not the logical mind. But when you can say, that's how I feel, and it will go away. Would you say then that when you think about the mind-body connection, that so much of processing feelings and being connected to your body is actually stillness? Because what I'm hearing you say is sitting with the feeling and being with the feeling and not trying to move through it. No, I don't think it has to be stillness. I know strength comes from stillness. And there's a lot of meditation and yoga comes from stillness. But let's imagine I'm coming home on the tube or the underground or the bus and I open my phone and there's a message that's upset me. And maybe I can't be still. There's all kinds of noise going on. And I feel uncomfortable being still. I think we have to give people things that are practical. And while I think stillness is a wonderful thing, we forget is the human mind is not even designed to be still because I've got to empty my mind. The mind isn't designed to empty. It's never really going to be completely still. Your body can be still. Your breathing can be still. But your mind is not designed to be still. You don't have to be still. You can be walking along the road. You can have the TV on in the background. You can be in a meeting. You could have your computer on. You could hear your boss having a conversation. You can still take a minute to say, let me tune in, be aware of my feelings, accept them. And then I can say it in my head. I feel very upset that I didn't get that promotion. Someone else did. And I know they're not better than me. It's upsetting me, but I'm going to just accept I feel like that. I think having to be still makes it much more complicated than it is. And I think a lot of human beings go, oh, that's work. I've got to sit down, get into a position, look into a flame, pay attention to my breathing, do all the, I can't be bothered. I think what we've done a lot in the wellness industry, 
is to make it too complicated, to make it work. So I've got to write out a hundred goals a day and meditate and chant a hundred times. And we've all got jobs, families, homes, commutes, bills, kids. We've all got plenty to do. We don't need any more to do that's work. So you can do the triple A's in the middle of your laundry if you want to. You can do them anytime at all. So when you talk about this idea of wellness needing to be easy, I think about kind of frictionless habits and the way we brush our teeth every morning or take a shower. How do we build in the AAA or how do we build in time to process these feelings without it feeling so overwhelming and so burdensome? Are there certain opportunities throughout the day or places that you recommend that feel easier for folks who may be approaching this kind of, I hesitate to even say work, but mindset for the first time? I think just check in on yourself. What am I feeling? What is my body telling me? You know, I went somewhere and I felt this lurch in my stomach. I knew it was a bad idea. I knew I shouldn't have gone there. I knew it wouldn't work out. I knew that was a mistake. And yet I overrode my feelings. I started to use logic. Of course I should go. If you get in an elevator and someone gets in, you don't like them, get out. But we're so busy going, I mustn't offend that person. Surely I'm being ridiculous. Someone's walking towards me. I don't feel comfortable. I'm going to override it and suppress it. And you've got to stop that and tune into your feelings. I love this idea of it's easier to hear the truth almost from someone else than from yourself, or it's easier to give someone else support than to help yourself. I know that you, in your writings, you've talked about your first kind of inspiration into this work was supporting your flatmate in her obsessive dieting and exercising and overeating and how that was really the beginning of your journey into self-improvement and wellness What do you think it is about helping others that is often easier or at least easier to be the first step before we help ourselves? Why is that? I think we can be very objective with other people. It just makes so much more sense. You look at someone else and go, oh, I see. You're not seeing what I'm seeing because we don't want to see. We don't want to see stuff. We are blind to it. We choose to put on blinkers. And I think When you're a therapist or when you're looking at a friend, you can see what they clearly can't see or won't see. So I think we're very good at deluding ourselves and we only see the truth and we're ready. The the filter falls away we're ready to see the truth. Until we're ready, we just won't see it. Is there a way to expedite the process of being ready or for someone who's so good. I mean, I'm thinking of a friend who's so good at seeing the truth in others, but then it's either harder to see the truth in himself or he can see the truth in himself, but then is unable to take action. How do you reconcile that? Well, I think, you know, everything comes back to having very good dialogue with yourself. We're all taught, hey, if you want to be great in career, Learn how to dialogue with your customers, your clients. You want to be good in a relationship, learn how to dialogue with them. You want to be a great parent, learn how to dialogue with your kids. But actually, the most important dialogue you will ever have is with yourself. 
And one of the things you can do is kind of train your mind by saying, I'm ready to see the truth. I'm ready to know what this is. I'm ready to look at this and I'm ready to see it head on and bring it on. I can deal with it. I say to my daughter, darling, I will never punish you for telling the truth. You must always tell me the truth. And of course, when she began as a teacher to tell me the truth of some of the things her friends got up to, I swear my eyes were out on stalks, but I told her I will <laughs> never punish you. But you have to be ready to hear that truth. When I heard some of her truths, it was uh, amazing. But often we don't want to hear the truth and we don't let it in. And then our bodies have to do the job for us of expressing grief and sadness. And I think it is a choice. Well, even when you think about the work of an entrepreneur, you have inspired millions through your approach, who have read your books, who have taken your courses. And I know when I reflect on my journey building Move This World, so much of it involves facing really difficult truths and also failing and facing those failures and being open to failing and talking about my failures with my team with my husband, with my daughters. And so in your journey of building this movement of I am enough, have there been opportunities where you have had a hard time failing or being open to failing or facing difficult truths? Oh, I think so. I think when a relationship ends, there's a feeling of failure. If you're building a business and it doesn't work out or your book gets rejected, I think human beings deal with a lot of rejection every day. We get fired, we get dumped, we think of something's great and it doesn't work out. We spend ages buying someone a gift, they don't even like it. We think, oh, I got that wrong. But the thing is, it's not how often you get rejected that hurts you. It's it's how quickly you can come back. So we can't go through a life without rejection. I've been fired, I've been dumped. I think most people probably say they have, but I look back now and think, gosh, that was the best thing that ever happened. So it's not what happens to you that affects you, it's how you interpret it. The meaning you attach to an event will affect you way more than the event. And that's very good news for us because it means we can change the meaning. I loved someone so much, I thought they loved me. They dumped me, I'm brokenhearted. I'll never get over it. Or, well, Maybe I deserve better. Would I want to be with someone that doesn't love me the way I love them? That's not what I want at all. I want to be with someone that loves me as much as I love them. And it can be hard until you understand that events affect you, but the meaning affects you so much more. And you have a choice of changing the meaning. And once you start to do that, what's so wonderful is it starts doing it back. So I've had many events in my life, including getting cancer, that have been certainly challenging. But what really helped me so much was I started off changing the meaning, and then my mind did it for me. It started to do it automatically, and that's been one of the most wonderful things in my life. And I was on a plane with my husband, Bruce. He said, you know, I really marvel at your ability not to get stressed. And I said, well, yeah, but that's because I tell myself all the time, oh, I can handle this. This is fine. It's not a big deal. It won't be here in another year. And one of the things that helps me a lot is to sit back and think, okay, this situation I'm in now, you have to keep looking what's great about it. And it starts being what you do. And then the wonderful thing is it becomes who you are. And then it really is extraordinary. 
So much of this work happens in community. You talked about your husband on the plane and your daughter and the validation and safety that you offered her and what that meant for her ability to be honest with you. What role do others play in the work that we do to help ourselves overcome those challenges or move through failure? I think when you can show people who you really are, you never think, oh gosh, my friends won't like me because I'm falling apart, I'm failing. One of the things that I understood very early on is that the basis of all friendships is that we choose people who share our vulnerability. And yet we're so scared of sharing people. We're on, I mustn't cry. Doesn't anyone know that I'm struggling? I mustn't tell anyone I'm having a bad time. I need to pretend everything is perfect because I'm dependent on the approval of others. And that's a massive mistake. We've sort of lost track of the fact that the person's approval we need the most is our own approval. So when you can show people your vulnerabilities, which is very bonding, when you can show people you're having a bad day or an off day and they're still there and they still love you, you've done something amazing, you've discovered that your friends love you because you're you. And that frees you from a terrible issue that we have, which is believing that we've got to earn love, chase love, run after love, work for love, buy love. So people do that, and yet that's not what love is unconditionally given and received. So when you're playing the game of, you know, I'll always look smart and I'll always be kind and nice and people will like me, they don't even know who you are. When you can just be yourself and your friends love you because you're you, you've won in every possible way. I would never say I love my friends less because they're having a bad day. I would never love my husband or daughter less or my sister because they were going through a challenge. And yet even though we do that, we have this fear that our friends won't love us if they know that we're not perfect. And I think in all my years of being a therapist, I found very quickly that my unhappiest clients were always those who were trying to be perfect. They were also the loneliest people because we don't like perfect people. They make us feel inadequate. We like flawed people. I mean, the truth is that I'm flawed and you're flawed and we can have a beautiful flawed relationship. I call it being flawsome. But if I pretend (laughs) I'm perfect, I'm trying to have a perfect relationship with you. It's never going to work. So accept the best you can ever be as a flawed person. Be flawsome. It's wonderful. It frees you to stop pretending. And when you stop pretending, you start living a much better life because it's real and it's honest. I love that word flawsome. I'm going to use that if that's okay. Yeah, you should. Of course. We're all flawsome. Many of your clients are CEOs, Olympic athletes, celebrities. Do you find that people of that position of power and visibility have a harder time cultivating vulnerability in themselves and in their relationships? I think so. I think, you know, for a woman who's a supermodel, they just feel they can never have a day off. They can never go out looking a mess because people write about them and say, oh my God, they didn't look like that in real life. I think it's a great shame. Maybe people think they have to be perfect when What makes you love someone is their imperfections. Like I have two cats and one of them, he can't see probably the other one. It's just a greedy little thing and she's quite fat. And I love their imperfections. And we forget that our imperfections make us so much more endearing. Women will tell you again and again that when they try to be perfect, they just 
face such disappointment because people expect them to be perfect. And you can't be perfect. Nature will not allow you to be perfect. You can only be a flawed person. Mm-hmm. Don't be a flawed person trying to be perfect. Just be you. You have to be flossom. Flossom. All <laughs> the way flossom. It's a great place to be. You've said that he who hesitates is lost. I loved reading that because so much of making an impact, whether it's on yourself and your family, your community, or as an entrepreneur building a movement, is about taking action. And so is there a moment in your life where you have either felt the consequences of hesitation or by not hesitating, you were able to see your action come to fruition? I know when I was 25, I was offered a very good book deal to write a book and I just couldn't do it. I tried to, not very hard on my ad, but I did begin to think about writing a book and I could only see how lonely and isolating that would be. I was probably very young to write a book and I didn't write the book. I could say I wasn't ready, but I was looking at the wrong thing. And then later I learned to say yes to everything. I've got a book deal, yes. Even if I don't know what I'm doing, I learned if you say yes to everything, you can come back and say no later. But if you say no, you can't really come back and say yes. So when I've hesitated, think, do I really want that? Should I do that? Is that right for me? Especially if I look at what would be wrong about it, I've sometimes regretted that. So I learned say yes to everything, even things that are out of my depth. Because in saying yes, I have the choice of later saying, actually, I've changed my mind. You have a brilliant brain. We all have a brilliant brain. and You always have a choice. Use it to work out what could go wrong or use it to work out what could go right. You know, it's so important to look at things and think, well, that could be amazing. I'd be crazy to say no to that. But often we do say no. We say no for all the wrong reasons. You know, when I was, I don't know, 22, I had an amazing career. And I met this great guy and he said, come with me to America. And I went, okay. And I said, you're crazy. You're giving up a great job. I said, well, I can get another great job. And I went to America. It didn't work out, actually, but we had a wonderful time. We're still great friends. And I'm so glad I said yes to that, even though it didn't work out, because I had a great adventure. And I could have said, oh, no, I'm, I'm just going to stay around. It's safe. I've got a good job with a good income. But life's an adventure. It goes very quickly. And I think hesitating too much when you're looking at what could go wrong is blocking from seeing what could go right. You know, I married my husband 10 months after meeting him. He would have married me 10 days after meeting me. I thought about it and decided, hey, I'm just going to take a leap of faith. And I'm so glad I jumped in and didn't hesitate because we've had an amazing adventure. We're still having one now and it's been amazing. That's beautiful. How do you feel that your background in therapy has served you as an entrepreneur and allowed you to sustain and keep going in those moments of exhaustion and failure and risks that the emphasis that you place on yourself keeps you going? As a therapist, I looked at therapy very early on and didn't quite understand what I was seeing. I never understood how if you go to a doctor in the emergency room or a dentist or even a chiropractor, they offer you immediate relief from pain. You've broken your leg, then put it in a cast. Your tooth's fallen out, let me fix that. You've hurt your back, let me manipulate it. Therapy was the only world that said, bring me your pain every week for weeks and weeks, maybe even years and years. And when we get to trust each other, maybe you'll get better. There's no guarantees here, but you're going to learn 
to know who you are. And I always thought that was a very strange offering because whether you're in emotional pain or physical pain, it all hurts and people want to come out of pain. So I decided to challenge therapy. And in fact, I created my own brand of therapy called Rapid Transformation Therapy. I was told those words rapid and therapy should never be in the same sentence. Why? Well, it's just not right. But who said that? And what did they know? And I was very good at challenging stuff. Like people said, you can't possibly do therapy on a screen. The only reason that's true is because when therapy was invented, there were no screens. Most people didn't even have a phone. You couldn't do phone therapy or Skype or Zoom therapy because those things weren't invented. Now we've discovered that for some people, Skype therapy is better. For certain people, like I've worked as a police officer, I wouldn't go to my police therapist. I wouldn't go to a therapist, but I'll work with you from my kitchen because I feel safe. I feel protected. And so I think I've always challenged the norm. I've always believed if there's a rule, why do I have to obey that rule? What's the point of that rule? Just because it's written, it doesn't mean it's true. And so I think I challenged a lot of therapy. I wanted to simplify therapy, simplify coaching. I wanted to put my brand of therapy into schools, which we're doing very successfully. And I think it is a leap of faith. You never know if it will work out. But I always believe that the only risk in life is not to take the risk. Not taking the risk is the biggest risk of all. I got a book, but I'm not going to submit it in case no one likes. I've got an idea. I'm not going to take it to market in case it gets rejected. I've got a thought, but I'm not going to share it in case people don't like it. That's the biggest risk, not taking the risk. If you take the risk and it doesn't work, well, you've learned something. You've enhanced your education. So I think I've always been a rule breaker and a risk taker. And I'm very glad I have been because it was doing things outside the box and taking a risk that advanced my career the way it did. You have to be a bit of a renegade and a bit of a rebel. Otherwise, you just do the same old, same old. And I think the world likes newness and we're ready for newness. So before we close, Marissa, you mentioned this program that you are implementing in schools. If you were to say, this is my vision of an improved world, what is the one change you would like to have people make in themselves broadly? You've already impacted millions. Now you're working with young people. But what would you want your legacy to be in terms of the improved, more empathetic world that we leave behind? You know, I created the I'm Enough movement because I believe that behind all of our emotional issues is the same thing. I don't feel good enough, smart enough, worthy enough. Um, Hence, I'm just trying to change myself so that I'll be enough. And I would love it if more and more people took on board the I'm Enough movement and know the truth. You are enough just the way you are. It's one of the things we're having in schools. Some of the schools have said, you know, this is amazing. Bullying has almost disappeared from our school because all the children say they're enough. They don't get bullied and they don't become a bully because they know they're enough. And the second message I'm teaching all of the children is that looking for your self-esteem in a place outside of yourself, you'll never find it. You and many of us create our greatest issues by looking for our self-esteem If I date you, if I lose a few pounds, if I have this outfit, if I have this job, if I have this label, will I have higher self-esteem? It's not out there. It's in here. And so, you know, I've got lots of messages, but my big ones are know you're enough. Don't give someone else the power to make you feel good because if you give them the power to make you feel good, then of course you give them the power to make you feel bad. 
Don't give that power to anyone. You own it. You know, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So I'm always a great fan of telling yourself a better life. I teach all the children with it. You need to lie, cheat, and steal. What is that? Lie to your mind, cheat, fear, steal back the phenomenal confidence you were born with, and your life will be forever better. Beautiful. What a great way for us to close and kind of soak in those messages as we move through our days. Thank you so much, Marissa. We'll go ahead and close with three intentional breaths together as an opportunity to just process and sit with all of the wisdom that you shared with us. Let's go ahead and take this first breath for the power of this work to transform lives and communities. So a deep breath in and out. Let's take this second breath for you for taking the time to share your experience and your stories with us and for inspiring millions to take action in our own lives. Breath in and out. Let's take this third and final breath for ourselves wherever we are listening to this conversation. May our days be meaningful and productive and our nights peaceful. Breath in and out. Thank you so much, Marissa. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thanks for listening to Move This World with me, Sarah Potler Lahane. Before you go, wherever you are right now, join me for one final breath and hold in your mind a word or phrase that you are taking away from this conversation. Breathe in and out. At Move This World, we know social and emotional wellness is necessary, relevant, and impacts our everyday lives at school, in our homes, at our workplaces, and in our relationships. The tools we need to develop are critical for our happiness and success as individuals and as communities. Together, we can create a world where everyone belongs. To explore more ways to move this world, visit us at movethisworld.com or follow us on Twitter at move underscore this world. If you liked this episode, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced by Jessica Altunian and Seaplane Armada. I cannot wait to move this world with you.